In the first chapter of End of the Myth, Greg Grandin tells the story of Frederick Stump. As settlers move forward, they terrorize Native Americans throughout the Ohio and Mississippi Valleys. An example of this frontier barbarism is Frederick Stump, an American-born son of German immigrants, who in 1755 helped found Fredericksburg, Pennsylvania. Stump got caught up in the Royal of War, which first enriched, then ruined, then enriched him again. He did well as a small-scale land speculator and store owner in eastern Pennsylvania. But without having obtained permission from Philadelphia, he moved his family somewhere beyond the mountains. There, native people reportedly killed his wife and children, setting Stump, along with his bonded German servant, Hans Eisenhower, the great-great-great-grandfather of future President Dwight D. Eisenhower, on a course of retribution. One sympathetic account describes Stump and Eisenhower, who went by the name John Ironcutter, hunting, quote, savages through valley and mountain, and when their victims climbed trees to get away from the hounds, their pursuers shot them down like wildcats. Stump became known as, quote, Indian killer. That is, he killed Indians, and he killed like an Indian, fighting, quote, the devil with fire, and using, quote, methods practiced by his savage foes. The worst came in January 1768. In an eastern Allegheny Hollow, Stump and Eisenhower murdered 11, quote, friend Indians. As British officials called the victims, five men, three women, two children, and one infant. They scalped the dead and disposed of the bodies, throwing some in a hole hacked in a frozen river and burning the rest. News of the murders traveled through the region especially throughout Indian lands. Quaker authorities in Philadelphia put a high bounty on Stump and Eisenhower, and the two men were soon captured. A mob made up of 70 to 80 white vigilantes and said to include members of the still active Paxton Boys came to their rescue. Armed with guns and tomahawks, the mob swarmed the old log jail where the two murderers were being held in the town of Carlisle and set them free. where we are working our way through Greg Grandin's 2019 book, The End of the Myth, as a sort of survey of American history, as well as a way to plumb the depths of the spiritual, cultural, and intellectual abyss that is what makes America a truly exceptional country. Uh, Munya, <laughs> I think the whole idea of this podcast came about because we were hanging out after the Mechanical Freak podcast and, you know, like joking around uh, while everybody else is doing the smart thing and going to sleep. 
and uh <laughs> if people don't know we like literally record the podcast at midnight it's stupid oh it's crazy <laughs> yeah and um you know you're reading this book i think when it came out maybe i'd seen some chapters of it or something and you know you were telling me stories out of this book uh most importantly you were telling me one story the story of Frederick Stump, which I yes. think we laughed about for uh, quite a while, right? No, uh, we, we why, were why, dying at this story. Yeah, yeah. Like, why Why do you think this, like, stood out so much? Yeah, and I, I mean, like, we were literally, like, hysterically laughing at it. And I could not get enough of it because I think, truly, Stump represents the type of person that, in the Western frontier, both, like, attracted and created, right? Like, he was literally the rising grind influencer of the 18th century. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, he's a real type of guy. Like, he, he's, he's like that TikToker who gives the business hack, like, the one weird trick to getting a passive income income stream going (laughs) this is how i bought this beautiful sixplex for free i bought this building for nine hundred and fifty thousand dollars put two hundred thousand dollars down which gave me a mortgage of seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars the rent from the eight units covers my mortgage and my monthly expenses yeah yeah but by just like obtaining an eightplex and charging triple the monthly mortgage payment in rent like simple yeah and you're like but where did the building come from they never tell you (laughs) yeah dude like stump is the type of guy who watches this shit and is like damn i'm feeling like the wolf of wall street for real You know, like he, he's 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 really out there like that. Um, and I mean, like just such like just stupid like tragic things were happening to him. But then he ultimately like you know gets like rich, broke, rich again. Like insanely racist, insanely violent man. And like those are the type of guys who like are like the actual people who might like carve some stuff out for them. Um, above all else, it's just such a. It was just such an. Um, amazing just stupid story like men men like fred stump were like not alone like he's like one character but it's not the only one you know like um he was trying to seize western lands but like people like george washington right um sent out his own personal surveyor after like the french and indian war to look for like you know choice like speculative assets for a future president right but you know washington unlike stump right had a lot of wealth and you know so Washington basically get people like Stump to do the dirty work, basically like disguising like people like Stump as like, you know, is there like hunting for game? Um, but like the whole like drive and appeal was the same, right? It's just like, you know, the actual wealthy elites like George Washington would basically get oafs like Fred Stump to like go out and maybe get their wife and kids like murdered for his own like speculation bidding on land. Mm-hmm. Um until like Washington sought to secure some of the most valuable lands of the West, writing that he intended to do so, quote, notwithstanding proclamation that surrounds it at its present and prohibits the settling of them all. For I can never look upon the proclamation, meaning the Royal Proclamation of 1763, in any other light than as a temporary expedient to quiet the minds of the Indians. Washington then concludes, it must fall. Yeah, as Granted observes, the Declaration of Independence of 1776 was, among other things, the colonists' counter to the Royal Proclamation of 1763. America's transition from British colony to independent republic was no real improvement for the country's native population. 
1610, the Jamestown colony had declared their, quote, right of war to invade and destroy the Powhatan, whereby we shall enjoy their cultivated places and their cleared grounds and all their villages shall be inhabited by us. Despite the colonists' hunger for Indian lands, the Crown did make an effort to limit colonial excursions into Indian lands, not out of any real love for the natives, but in an effort to balance tensions between England, France, and Spain, and between the smaller number of colonists and the larger force of Indians. The British treated native tribes as independent nations, whereas the colonists would treat them as a lower order of humanity whose rights they were in no way bound to respect. Tensions erupted with the Seven Years' War and the post-war effort of the English to partition North America between the colonists and the native tribes. As Grandin notes, quote, The partition of North America was unworkable. The proclamation, again the proclamation of 1763, the proclamation itself was incoherent, offering land to white veterans of the Seven Years' War and protection of their land to Native Americans. The crown stalled on the first and couldn't deliver on the second. Yeah, the Royal Proclamation of 1763 and the threat of further limitations being placed on Western expansion became a primary cause of the colonists' rebellion in 1776. After that rebellion in 1782, future President George Washington proposed that veterans of the Revolutionary War be given parcels of land in Indian territory as a way to get the right type of people the Frederick Stumps, if you will, into the <laughs> Western territories. Historian Ward Churchill describes George Washington's approach to dealing with Native tribes. In order to cut costs, both human and financial, which otherwise might attend this wholesale takeover of what was unquestionable Native territory, Washington borrowed liberally from another English tradition which has been evolving since Jamestown, advising that a series of treaties to be negotiated with indigenous nations. The purpose of these were to convince the Indians, people by people, to cede strategic localities to the United States in exchange for solemn guarantees of their remaining land bases. Thus, outpositioned as well as outnumbered and outgunned, they could be eliminated one after another, either by voluntary relocation to areas beyond the claimed boundaries of the United States or through liquidation by force. In short, Washington's plan, writes historian Alan Eckert, was in reality no less than a monumental conspiracy by which the Western lands belonging to the Indians could now most easily and least expensively be wrested from them. As part of the desire to expand West, American capital came up with the new and innovative ways to domesticate and destroy indigenous people. Writing to the territorial governor of Indiana in 1803, President Thomas Jefferson advised, we shall push our trading houses on native tribes in the newly acquired Louisiana territory and, quote, be glad when Native Americans fell into debt and had to sell their lands. And if that didn't work, quote, they must see that we have only to shut our hand to crush them. It was an extension of colonial policies of burning the fields of tribes to reduce their condition to one of servitude, but with a new capitalist twist. The fate of the Indians so inflicted would be left to the market. Still, at many points the federal government sought to control Western expansion. In 1807, Thomas Jefferson signed the Intrusion Act, which tried to slow Western expansion. 
There were, of course, very practical explanations for this. Uncontrolled expansion could draw the U.S. into conflicts that the young nation had neither the money or the manpower to fight. And this was not just with native tribes, but with Spain to the south and Britain to the north, which would eventually play out in the War of 1812. But beyond the practical problems, many of the founders had a difficult time squaring their Republican values with their Western expansion. Greg Grandin writes, As the United States set about drafting a constitution in 1787, many delegates, despite Franklin's and Jefferson's ode to growth, fretted about size. They worried about the vices that come with vastness. The Spanish Empire was vast, so was Spanish despotism and corruption. Received political philosophy at the time, handed down by both the ancients Aristotle and Cicero. By the way, very few present-day historians of ancient Rome mention the fact that Cicero was a slumlord who bragged about how profitable his tenements were. And the moderns Machiavelli, Rousseau, and Montesquieu held that the republics were delicate flowers that could only be cultivated in small gardens. Quote, it is in the nature of a republic to have only a small territory. Otherwise, it can scarcely continue to exist, Montesquieu instructed his 1748. Quote, in a large republic, the common good is sacrificed to a thousand considerations. What the common good was depended on perspective. But most Republicans defined it as something greater than the sum total of individual interests. There was also something that rubbed these children of the Enlightenment the wrong way about the extermination of Native peoples. Historian Reginald Horseman describes the views of the enlightened intellectuals of the eastern seaboard who now lived lives insulated from the ongoing conflict to their west. Quote, by the mid-18th century, the prevailing intellectual view in both Europe and America was an optimistic one. At the basis of this optimism was the Enlightenment view that all mankind was of one species, and that mankind in general was capable of indefinite improvement. If the Indians had the same innate capacity as Europeans, then their savage state could be regarded as temporary. In this view, Indians could be brought into American civilization, transformed as to be indistinguishable from their fellow citizens. This relatively enlightened view of the Indian as a member of the Brotherhood of Man would be quickly broken on the levees of expediency and the developing race science that justified the role of slavery in the American economy. For instance, Thomas Jefferson was able to see past his humanist ideals when he ordered his Secretary of War to overcome the Indians of the Western Territory military and that the Indians be, quote, exterminated or driven beyond the Mississippi, adding, in war they shall kill some of us, we shall destroy all of them. This tension between the founders' ideals and their material hunger for land finally broke during the 1820s as Georgia demanded the federal government remove all Creek and Cherokee people in the western part of the state and abrogate any claim to private property in the state made by these peoples. The fight over the removal of the Creek and Cherokee peoples in Georgia became so embittered that James Monroe in 1823 remarked that he had never been addressed with as much vitriol as the Georgia delegation addressed him. When John Quincy Adams, Secretary of War, James Barber, proposed his plan to remove Georgia's Indian population, he commented on how the lust for land made dealing with the native population 
in a humane manner impossible. Quote, they see that our professions are insincere, that our promises have been broken, that the happiness of the Indians is a cheap sacrifice to the question of new lands. Bob War later recalled a conversation he had with Adams' Secretary of State, Henry Clay. When Clay more succinctly summed up the changing feeling towards the country's Indian population, Clay argued, quote, that it was impossible to civilize the Indians, that there was never a full-blooded Indian who took to civilization. He believed they were destined to extinction, and although he would never use or countenance inhumanity towards them, he did not think them as a race worth preserving. They were not an improvable breed, and their disappearance from their human family will be no great loss to the world. In 1828, those that desired to wage total war against the Indian population would get their champion with the election of a man named General Andrew Jackson of Tennessee. Do you ever hear of Andrew Jackson of Tennessee? So looking at this, we see, I mean, we've tried to have this discussion in going through this book about, you know, by talking about the road not taken early on and stuff like that, that this is a world of choices. There's nothing worse than hearing somebody say, oh, this person was just a man of their time. Yeah. Because it always implies there was only ever one road that they could have been on, right? And right here in this sort of debate, we see, no, there was different visions of sort of race and identity at the time, right? When it came to Native Americans, there was an idea, an enlightenment idea of the community of man and things like that, that a lot of people in the U.S. had to very specifically reject, personally, right. yeah, uh, in order to grasp onto something darker, more ferocious, more vicious, right? Which is an idea of racial exclusion and, you know, a sort of uh, a, an empire based off of survival of the fittest. Yeah, exactly. And even zooming out a little more, there were even competing visions or at least contrasting visions that weren't in the American way of how to run a republic. A lot of people, I think, might claim that it was just the nature of how republics work, that they just need to expand endlessly like the U.S. in an aggressive fashion. But um, even um, to the point, what was simultaneously going on was a man of Simon Bolivar. At the same period of time, Latin America was uh, liberated from uh, colonialism and was uh, independently uh, a republic of Gran Colombia, um, amongst others, too. And Simone Bolivar uh, controlled that and had a different vision that was faced not just on, you know, um, on grand visions of a republic, which he did have, but um, recognizing that there was no more free land, right? So he had, like, visions of non-aggression, non-imperial, anti-colonial community that's, like, bound to the limits of their borders already, Right. Unlike the French and the Haitians, like Republicans in the United States didn't push that premise of equality into the social arena, right? And undermine the right of private property. They didn't think that the state should try to like conjure like collective virtue out of individual interests, which is different from a Simone Bolivar, who once wrote that the point of a Republican government was to produce, quote, the greatest possible sum of happiness. 
So those are like two very different approaches of operating a republic, right? Um, like Simone Bolivar was really kind of looking at that more in a holistic, we can like actually resolve things through like, you know, um, diplomacy, non-aggression, and actually valuing the happiness of the people as like the sum total of, you know, what the point of a republic is instead of like aggre- aggressive, like capital expansion, um, like that's predicated on violence. Not to say that Grand Colombia was not, um, there was not violence amongst those countries. Like, and this is definitely a principle just in practice, right? Like definitely there was some violence going on there, but the overall um, vision that, and the myth that there's free land in America was not the same Latin America. There was recognized boundaries and borders and that expansion thesis, which is obviously if you need to expand predicates and implies genocide um, was not there because Simon Bolivar and, you know, many others of the revolution um, had bought into this idea that, you know, we can actually have fixed borders and, you know, cooperate Mm -hmm. with each other. Yeah. And I mean, it's interesting because, ideas they come from places material realities and things like that and the ideal of the united states as we've gone over in the show now and as we're going to continue to go over comes from a very particular development of capitalism in the united states and from the american capitalist class the american revolution is from the beginning a revolt of american capitalists against british capitalists yes it was a bourgeois revolution yeah and its end result is they created a bourgeois republic deeply fearful of the masses, deeply fearful of, you know, other populations, their slave population that they kept in bondage, the Indian population that they saw as existing only on their frontier. Um, whereas with Simone Bolivar, you know, when he's plotting his war with Spain to liberate essentially the vast, you know, a huge chunk of northern uh, uh, South America. You know, people can go look, find the old maps of Grand Colombia. It's not just Colombia. It's about no, oh, maybe it's very, eight modern countries involved yeah, in Grand Colombia like at this point. Bolivia, like a <laughs> yeah. lot of countries are involved. Yeah. Uh, when he was making that plan, he was actually uh, being given shelter, being sheltered by the Haitian government, right? Uh, who had just launched a revolution of its own, a revolution that started from a very different place than the American Revolution, the place of enslaved people against their masters, right? And Simone Boulevard is sitting, presumably in Port-au-Prince, getting military training from the Haitian government, getting supplies, weapons. And I think we could probably say, probably get a little political theory from the Haitian government as well. <laughs> you could say. <laughs> and because of this different origin of Bolivar's revolution in Latin America, the vision of it and the product of it are different. Right. Right. And like the Spanish American nations were just like very socialized at an early age. Um, and I guess like, you know, in contrast to um, Thomas Jefferson said in 1809, like, again, like a member of the, like, ruling class, um, the capitalist class who ended up forming the republic um, that is the United States. Um, in 1809, he said, the solitary republic of the world, the only monument of human rights, and the sole depository of the sacred fire of freedom. Like, that is, like, what you see is, like, the U.S. Mm-hmm. is, basically. 
Yeah. yeah. And I mean, a man who literally was going home and raping his slaves. I mean, right. You know, the the irony of, uh, you know, the founding fathers and their high talk versus their actual practice, of course, we don't need to, to harp on. <laughs> Everybody is well aware. But it is interesting, you know, one of the agreements that Bolivar makes with uh, the Haitian government is that when going into Spanish Latin America, that he'll liberate any slaves that he finds. This creates a different relationship between Bolivar and the peoples of Latin America when he gets it. And he right. does it. Like, yeah. To be clear, he does do it. In 1822, slavery is made illegal in Grand Colombia. Um, it's this thing of that we're getting harping on this idea of like the economic base of a society matters uh, when it comes to the structures that society erects around that base. Similarly, the class base of the ruling class matters as well. Yep. If that class base is former slaves as it was in Haiti, it's going to look very different than the slave masters in America who launched the revolution in America, <laughs> right? And that kind of stuff, you know, there's more to life than just ideals. There are interests. In that. Yes. <laughs> it has to be acknowledged. Now, that being said, there is this sort of interesting story in America, uh, in the Americas that's happening, which is the creation in the late uh, 18th century. It's finally kind of dissipates by maybe the mid 19th century of what comes to be called the Comanche empire. All right. And, you know, historical, you know, works trying to actually deal with, you know, the Comanche Empire in this history really don't show up in the United States even until about the 1990s. But the Comanche Empire is a affiliation of indigenous people that have been pushed west. Uh, not all Comanche, not all, you know, what we would call in the United States, I guess, racially or ethnically similar, right? But they're creating these larger groups who are involved in very complicated trade networks and political negotiations, and at the same time are involved in the slave trade. And the interesting thing about this is it shows that capitalism, much like smallpox, can infect you before you even meet a European. Hmm. <laughs> right? Yeah, right. You know, <laughs> just being near it a lot of times can cause an infection. And again, for the Comanche coming from a social base that was outside the capitalist structure, you know, it has its own development, right? And that's different than being a slave on a plantation. Uh, so it's a long way around of saying the shit's complicated, but you have to look at those key things that we've been discussing, hopefully hammering on as we go through this book, which is what is the class structure that you're looking at? Like who's in charge? What's what is their social base? Right. And at the same time, what's the economic base of the society they run? Because miraculously, men like Thomas Jefferson can say lots of fancy things. But when it comes to making his money, as we discussed before, he's willing to whip people, do whatever to get them working on his plantation to make money, right? All the fancy words go out the window when it comes down to it. Right. So we want to leave you today with this passage from Grandin's book. The passive phrasing continued down the line. The United States would soon deploy an extraordinary amount of federal force to uproot and drive Native Americans west. 
many to their deaths. And yet its leaders described their fate as the result of an, quote, unavoidable operation of natural causes. Their misfortunes, said Lewis Cass, who as Andrew Jackson's Secretary of War executed Indian removal, have been the consequence of a state of things which could not be controlled by them or us. Thus, the United States was hurled forward in an act of will against its will. In James Madison's formulation, freedom depended on expansion. As the settlement line moved west, however, expansion came to be identified not just as a condition of freedom, but as freedom itself. The identification took place in a disorienting manner. Quote, effects would be confused with causes, Peter Onoff writes. The irresistible westward tide of settlement appears to be its own cause, the manifest destiny of nature's action, rather than the orchestrated outcome of federal policy. This confusion of cause and effect, which mystified the way public force makes private power possible, multiplied outward, resulting in other confusions of means and ends, of idealism and realism, of isolation and internationalism even of time and space. Americans developed a character, as described by political scientist Lewis Hartz, of absolutism, defined by a compulsive, obsessive individualism and timeless innocence of mind. Join us next week when we discuss chapter three of the book and talk about the Jacksonian Revolution. Revolution. dice que siempre podrán saltar el muro por muy alto que sea. Ellos, junto a activistas, aseguran que la valla es el peor legado de la administración Trump y que no ha disminuido los cruces de
Space.